0: This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtTactic.com. Have you been on our website lately? We have released so many reports this past month. It's really incredible. Of course, you can always rely on ArtTactic for auction analysis reports, which we've provided for the post-war and contemporary auctions, as well as the Impressionist and Modern auctions. We also have a series called the Artist Market Report, where we profile different contemporary artists and talk about their markets and their works and what's going on in terms of institutional support and gallery support. In May of 2019, we released a new report for the fantastic portrait painter Elizabeth Payton, whose market has been really red hot lately, so make sure to not to miss that one. And we also released our confidence report for the contemporary art market. We polled different collectors, galleries, auction specialists, and we asked their opinions on different artists, on the economy, on the art market, where things are headed, where things are now, and we pull them all, take all of those results together, and we Provide them to you in a report so you can get a sense as to where the experts think the market is right now and where it's heading. You can get all of that by visiting ArtTactic.com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. It's been a busy past few weeks here in New York City with so much going on in the contemporary art world. We had Freeze New York a few weeks ago. We had the auctions last week as well as the Whitney Biennial opening. So much going on here In this week's episode, we're really going to focus on this past week's post-war and contemporary auctions. Overall, really incredible, strong, robust prices pretty much across the board for a lot of blue-chip artists, for a lot of mid-career artists, for uh, emerging artists. I think I read somewhere about 50 artists set auction records last week, so really strong numbers. We're going to talk to Morgan Long, who's the senior director and the contemporary specialist at the Fine Art Group about the auctions, what were her impressions and takeaways from the sales, is there some concern because prices are so high, who were some of the big winners this past week when we think about artists and markets moving. So we really break everything down with Morgan. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much. Morgan, it's great to have you on.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. Great to be back from New York. Really exciting week that we just had.
0: Definitely a really exciting week. So much art being sold by so many different artists across several auction houses. Overall, I think the s- sales were quite strong. When you started to analyze the results, what were some of the major takeaways you had from this past week's sales?
1: Sure. Um, one of the things that we always like to look at, aside from going to all of the sales, looking at the numbers, obviously previewing lots ahead of time, is to, and then obviously going through numbers afterwards, but is really to to sit there in the sale room and really look at what the depth of bidding is. Uh, where the phones are coming up, of coming from, where you kind of you're making an educated guess internationally where the bidding is coming from, but to see whether it's trade, whether it's in the room, who's really active, which lots have you know squeaked away with one bid, which lots have uh, you know a good depth of bidding across the board um, at the top end, and that's something that we really look at and we uh, overall as well as as kind of crunching those numbers, but also just to see where that is. Is that in the lots of uh the day sale lots the lower end you know kind of younger artist day sale lots is that at the super high end you know the kind of trophy lots and the impressionist and modern side and also the contemporary side that we saw this week and what our main takeaway from the entire sale week is that it was really across the board there wasn't one sector or one price point which you could say really stood out um things did really well and and you know a lot of people talk these days about whether there's been a price spike whether things are being really speculated on whether it's gone a bit too crazy and i I think the the other takeaway is that it wasn't too crazy it was just really good really solid good prices for good pieces um you know there's some things in with in in the obvious overpricing or things that weren't in good condition that didn't sell, and you know that's what you have to do your due diligence, make sure you're not actively bidding on one of those. We were just overall impressed by by the the wide range of success that the week the week garnered in in New York. I think every auction house involved should be really thrilled. Bonhams, Phillips, Christie, Sotheby's, they did really well.
0: I think you raised a really good point about not just looking at auction results, so what something sold for, but also whether you're in the sale room physically there or you're watching online or your phone bidding just to get a sense and to really understand how much activity bidding activity there is, uh, for a specific lot. So is it just two parties that are going back and forth on a specific artwork, or is it several parties bidding, you know, in the room, on the phone, absentee, online, and where are they bidding? Are they all doing it at the low estimate, or for something that really goes out of hand and sells for way above the high? Was there a lot of activity above the high, as or as we approach the high, or is it really just two parties uh, going back and forth? I think that gives you additional information, useful information, about the depth um, of interest for a specific artwork um, and maybe even an artist's market more generally.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: And so I'd love to dig a little bit deeper and look at some of the artists and how they performed this past week. Specifically, who are some of the big winners over this last week's auctions, whether it's artists who maybe we had high expectations and they actually achieved those expectations and the work sold really well, or maybe certain artists you know, expectations were more tempered, but they did fantastic. Um, so who are some of the big winners of this past week?
1: Well, I think we won't go into the obvious Jeff Koons and Kaws. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I think their successes of the week were, were fairly evident. Um, what... There's a lot of chatter as well about you know, Warhol, has it been soft? Has it been you know a lot of activity? Is he coming back? i I think the the numbers kind of speak for themselves that you know the big pictures there deserve the prices that they got, and some of the other ones were a little bit less successful. Um, you know, the Double Elvis found it hard to compete with uh, the Rauschenberg and the, um, the the Coons rabbit, you know in terms of a fifty million dollar price tag at Christie's. Um, I was really thrilled to see the Rauschenberg price, I have to say. I've been a huge fan of his market for a long time. Um, flying the flag over here in London for the American artists. Um, you know, it was a big price jump, that estimate, and obviously a big result just pipped by uh, by the rabbit. But, um, you know, it was a one-of-a-kind piece. And I think that's one of the things that we're constantly looking for when these things are coming up is, is the rarity value and are we going to see something like that again. Um, and in terms of the Rauschenberg, everybody admits, you know, this, this is as good as it gets in terms of the provenance, in terms of the date, in terms of the imagery involved. And, and it, it really ticked every box. And I was really thrilled to see that get the the price that it did, um, can I can I talk about disappointments, Adam?
0: Yes, please do.
1: I was a little disappointed that there wasn't a greater showing for female artists during the week. You know, we saw a couple of Joan Mitchells do well, um, but on that front, you know, there weren't that many things. And you know, I've been a, a big fan of, of a big. I wouldn't say fan, but a, a, a big. Um, Oh, I've just been watching and and hoping that some of these prices, we're going to be seeing them increase for some of the the women artists going. I mean, there were definitely some records. Um, Dana Schutz set uh, her own record twice in one night um, with a piece at Phillips and then another um, piece at Sotheby's. But I'm really hoping that we're getting a bit more exposure and and a bit more, um, I don't know, evening sale activity, shall we say, um, um, for the female artists and a bit more recognition. But, uh, you know, on we push.
0: Yeah, Dana had a fantastic week and it's long overdue. It's great to see the market finally catching up on her. She's just such an outstanding artist. Other female artists I thought did really well, Amy Sherrill, Jordan Castile, Julie Curtis. Those are more younger artists. Um, artists like Cecily Brown, Micheline Thomas. So I think there were female artists that had good weeks, but a lot of it was in the day sale. And I think it'll take time for that to appear in the evening sale because for so long female artists were undervalued and still are compared to some of their male, male counterparts.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had, look, there was a new new record for sculptures that by Louise Bourgeois. I think we've come to expect some of these things from Louise. It's just getting some of the, the mid-tier and really great female painters. You know, Cecily Brown had a, a good example come up. Um but getting more of them involved into these evening sales will really I think showcase their work. So it is great that the Schutz, for example, has had that, that evening sale platform where, you know, a couple of years ago she didn't and I just would love to see a few more women coming up there.
0: Originally you were known as the Fine Art Fund, not the Fine Art Group, because you launched as an art investment fund. You still have the funds now as well as other business activities in the art market. But speaking of the funds that you still do operate female artists and how undervalued they've been and maybe still are is that has that been a focus of the funds and have you been able to benefit from an investment perspective by acquiring female artists who have been undervalued for some time
1: absolutely we have absolutely over the years um championed and and done incredibly well with some of these mid-level and you know cecily brown is one we've we've always championed her work from the primary market when we're doing advisory for collectors To the secondary market in terms of investment, Um, really big fan of her work, and you know it's been great to see her market continuing Um, on the British angle of things. Not that we saw any of her pictures this week, but Bridget Riley is another artist that we've you know on on every single level. We started investing in her works in our funds. Um, I'm pretty sure paid some world record prices for pictures way back when, and you know this year we've seen she's got a retrospective opening um, very shortly in Edinburgh. That's moving on to the Hayward in London uh, in October. um, so some of those female artists, we've really watched their careers move, and we're very active on, on all different levels.
0: I wanted to ask you about some of the incredible prices we're seeing for younger artists at auction this past week. If you look at each of the auction houses, just flip open the afternoon sessions, the first few lots are younger artists selling in the $100,000, $300,000 price range. We're seeing big price discrepancies between how these artists work,s so are priced on the primary market versus how they're priced on the secondary market, should this be cause for concern? You're an art. You have a lot of experience in the art market. I'm sure you've seen these kind of things before. These very quick price escalations for artists. Um, have you seen this many times in the past? And um, what do you? How do you expect this to play out?
1: Yeah, we definitely have seen this before. Interestingly. Um, I was reading a couple of over Youth sure finally had a couple of days off, um, which is a rarity in this, uh, in this world these <laughs> days and, uh, <laughs> and highly enjoyable. And of course I found myself reading old uh, exhibition catalogs and you know looking back you know 10 years at some of the auctions um, and seeing some of the names that were involved in you know, the high prices in the day sale, high prices in the evening sale. And we're not seeing a lot of those artists, even appear in the sales these days. And I was reading some exhibition catalogs, for example, from what Saatchi was doing in the early 2000s. Um, And, you know, there were a a lot of artists in there that we are looking at, including, you know, so he had a really fantastic group of, you know, not to keep going back to her, but Cecily Brown paintings Um, and some great Kippenburgers and some great Polkas. But a lot of the artists that were involved in those catalogs aren't artists that are even on the radar screen in the slightest today. So sometimes what we can see with those prices is is just a natural you know artists coming in and artists coming out of of that cycle for whatever reason they stop producing um they stop appearing you know, not so strongly on the market but I think it is something that is cyclical I think it's not necessarily driven by the fact that they've had a huge price at auction that's not the kind of thing that say oh the market's been pumped too high and it's just falling after that um, I think there is a, a natural progression in here, auction numbers can slightly reflect that sometimes but they can also, they, I agree they can distort it but you have to read through that and you have to look in, in terms of which artists you think are going to be sustainable for the long term over their career, I mean quite frankly we we're all aware of artists that just decide to stop working after a certain point in time so um, you know you, you've got to look in there you've got to slightly have your crystal ball out to look and see who you think is really going to to withstand whatever bumps in the road that the market throws at them is going to start and uh, is also going to develop their work in a way that that keeps it interesting um, in terms of collecting in terms of museum shows in terms of all of that which on the ground is what creates uh, some of those market market spikes
0: Yeah, I think if we take a step back from the art market and even just look at the broader economy, it's a very interesting time. The wealth gap is maybe higher than it's ever been. The wealthy are extremely wealthy. We're seeing inflation for the wealthy. We're seeing that reflect in the art world in terms of very high prices. When prices start getting really high, we're seeing it across the board for the most part at the auctions. What kind of advice do you give collectors? Should they be buying in this environment? Should they only be buying the best examples? What kind of advice can you give to collectors who are thinking about making major acquisitions in this environment?
1: We really believe in buying the best that you can by an artist. So you, if you have an artist, for example, that you think the starting price of a really good painting is $1 or $2 million, you million, know, don't be shy in thinking that you can actually buy a really great work on paper by that artist, and that might be the entry into uh, that artist market for you. Um, we also find, you know, a lot of great collectors also are buying limited editions. So if, if Jeff Koons really is your passion, and you obviously can't afford a, you know, what probably will be a now a hundred million dollar rabbit, you can enter into that on a completely different level, but still buy something very good, buy the best edition that you can, buy the best work on paper, not by Jeff, obviously, but by other artists. So there are different ways of entering into that that don't, uh, that aren't quite as restricted by some of these higher price points.
0: So now after these auction results, if we take a look at everything from the lens of the Art Investment Fund at the Fine Art Group, given where prices are, do you think there are still significant buying opportunities in this market? And also, do you think there are certain artists that if someone acquired them for investment reasons, maybe now's a good time to sell considering where the market is for some of these artists?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's something that when we get involved on um, in the non-fund side, but on the valuation side of things, which an advisory, which we do quite often, um, we're brought in to look at a collection, and you want to just kind of, you know, gauge the health of that collection. And as you said, there are certain things that you say, you know, what if you want to continue collecting, um, these are really great things to sell right now because these are going to give you some really strong profits, which you can then reinvest into your collection. These are some artworks you might want to think that you know potentially aren't going to be going up in the next five to ten years, and if you don't mind, you, know, you might want to cut your losses now and reinvest that money into other things. And these are some artists that we think would actually fill out into that. And it's, it's becoming harder and harder to find those artists that still have that strong upside potential. But this is going back to what you were just saying before, which is you really want to be buying the best. So another way of looking at it is if you have an artist that you are very strong in, but you don't have necessarily the best pieces, would be to sell those lesser pieces and really try and hunt out those really great things, which you know in the longer term are going to be providing you with those investment returns. I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with an individual picture, um, looking on the buy-sell and then the resell side later on, it's a little bit different. But when you're you're putting together a holistic collection and have maybe a longer-term approach to it, um, you just put a different strategy in place. And we're always looking um, at those different strategies, whether it's an individual, whether it's a corporate, whether it's a collection, whether it's a single piece.
0: You know, there really haven't been that many successful art investment funds, especially considering all the attention that the concept has gotten over the last decade or so i even remember this was in 2008 when i was attending the sotheby's institute of art in london hearing a lecture by someone from the fine art fund about the fund and how it was going and you know it's incredible that your investment funds are still going today um you know not many have had that kind of success maybe none have and have been operating for so many years But now at the Fine Art Group, you do a lot more than just art investment funds, so I thought you could chat for just a couple minutes with us about all the different activities that you do within the art market that make up the Fine Art Group, and uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit even about the history of the Fine Art Group, when it was the Fine Art Fund, and how it's evolved to encapsulate so many aspects of the art markets.
1: Well, the company has really grown, and that's one of the reasons I have to say why I've been involved with it since the beginning, and we've evolved with the way the market has changed so we we started off really just having uh, one investment fund which invested across the board in uh, old masters impressionist modern and contemporary and the smallest sector that we were investing in was contemporary but obviously you know the market started taking off when we had this this fund already structured in place and we found that we were really heavily trading in that contemporary side of things so quickly switched over um the portfolio allocation um, allocation into you know much stronger in the contemporary and being more active uh than we'd originally thought we were going to be sometimes that was holding things for 6 months when they were or 2 years or 3 years when originally we had a really longer term profile in place up to 10 years um so first fund grew into second fund which grew into third fund um and then you know a third fund was was really not even looking uh for the most part in old masters at all we were really heavily into I think at that point, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, kind of rode through the the kind of the I wouldn't even call it a dip, maybe even a blip in the market in you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and then coming out the other side you know, what we've always talked about is, is valuing, is is pricing it, looking at things through an investment approach. And that's when really um on the entrepreneurial side, our chief executive Philip Hoffman uh started looking at the fact that guarantees are becoming much more prevalent in the market again. Maybe this is a factor of if you know what happened in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, people wanted some extra security when putting things on the market. So we started getting very heavily involved into that side of things. Um interestingly now that, that that's kind of opened up And a lot of people are very active in that we've become less active, um, having seen, you know, the opportunities that we could make early on aren't quite the same opportunities that we're looking at today. Um, That said, we're still very much involved um, on that side of um, looking at these, reviewing things and, and, you know, never would say no to another opportunity in the guarantee market. But um, we also, you know, started at that point, a lot of people coming to us uh, in terms of helping them sell um a lot of people aren't necessarily uh, feel that secure with what's happening in the art world they don't really know the ins and the outs they don't understand um, you know, a proposal from an auction house versus a private dealer, um, even a proposal from one auction house to another. So we found we had more clients coming to us who need assistance in slightly demystifying what's happening on the on the day-to-day in the art world. Um, and from that, kind of doing evaluations and looking holistically at collections led to helping people um, sell major collections. We were involved the other year in, in one major estate sale um, at auction for, with everything from wine to monumental terracotta sculptures. Um, We're very much involved right now in helping a client sell a major jewelry collection, um, coming up at Christie's. And so we are kind of the middle person a lot of times uh, on the advisory side for clients who really need that extra help. Um, As well, it kind of grew holistically there into doing uh, really just straight collecting for people, new people coming into the market. We've got a lot of clients who are are based in Asia, based in the Middle East. Um, who are based really all over, and they want help entering into their market and knowing that they're going to be buying things from the get-go that are going to have long-term value. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're looking at investment, but what they want to know is that they're, they're very versed in what they're buying, um, whether it's you know something that they love and they really don't care that they might be making a speculative purchase, or whether it's, it's a much more serious purchase and they want all of the due diligence done properly, as they see it um, by us, before getting involved. Um, and then from there, the business has also grown naturally into having a, a lending arm as well. So we're financing against Artworks, um, which I think has been around for quite some time, but it's it's we are uniquely placed in that we're using all of this intelligence that we have on the primary market, the secondary market, the valuations, to be able to value any collateral coming to us in-house um, and being able to act at a, a speed, which I think is a little bit more rapid than some of the other players who need to outsource their valuations and market intelligence. And so our group has really grown from just having that initial fund to really being involved um, in all aspects of the lending business, the advisory side, and also still the investment side. You know, we do do private accounts for individuals. We're looking at raising another very large fund, um, hopefully with a long-term horizon on it. So I really see that when you're buying blue-chip work, that really helps to have that uh, longer-term approach, not that kind of shorter-term speculative approach. Um, So it's really exciting every day. We're working on all different aspects of that and looking really – uh, at every single aspect of the market, whether that's primary market, um, even going down to, to looking at doing studio visits. You know, we've got a great team involved in this. Obviously, it's not just me. We've got a great team based in London with some colleagues who are based internationally. And, um, and you know, we're looking at, it's just a fun time to be in the market right now, quite frankly, and these auctions this week only reinforce that.
0: You touched on guarantees. I want to ask you about that. Guarantees, Some people consider them somewhat controversial. I think they're an important part of the art market and the auction process. Guarantees really do bring forth a lot of great artworks to auction, to the market, that the sellers otherwise wouldn't be interested in selling, but they are because of these guarantees making them a risk-free proposition for them. So you mentioned that guarantees aren't as lucrative as they used to be. Is that because they're a lot more people willing to guarantee artworks now than maybe there was in the past and yeah take us inside that world of guarantees and how many people really are there willing to offer these guarantees and um what's it like thinking about offering a guarantee on a work and why isn't it as lucrative as it used to be for you
1: absolutely i think there are a lot more players who have entered into the market um you know it's it's been seen as a place where you uh, put a price on a piece. It's, it's, you know, We like to say to somebody, it's like putting a reserve price down on something, but it's a reserve price that you need to buy um, if you're the only bidder in place. And you've got to really make sure that you're happy to own that piece, um, to either add it to your collection or to add it to a portfolio. And I think we're finding a lot of people coming into the guarantee market who see it as a way to make upside. Um, I think there absolutely is upside to be made in the guarantee market if that's what you're looking for, but you also need to be prepared to own things. Um, there was an interesting article last week, in uh, Kelly Crow wrote an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal where I think a few guarantee players reiterated that, but I think there are a lot of people in the guarantee market who've been slightly disappointed by the fact that they've come home with some significant art purchases in terms of, of price. Um, and so because of having more players in the market, I think it's, it was seen as a place where you know you could adjust your starting price on the guarantee a little bit higher to see which, you know, which guarantor you might get into place. And that probably, uh, to be frank, wasn't us if you're driving the price up on your guarantee. When we're selling, and I have to say we've been on the other side as well, we, we sell a lot with guarantees and we see a guarantee... Um, as a starting place, we don't see it as the ultimate end price of what you're trying to get. A guarantee is great if you need that security in place, but it shouldn't be the highest price that you're trying to get for something. Uh, it should really be, um, a, as I said, a, start, a starting place. And uh, you know what we've found, and if this week tells us anything, it's that having artworks priced in the right range is where they really sell. And that was one thing I just wanted to go back on from this week is to look at you know the auction houses in terms of numbers, Christie's hit a much higher number than Sotheby's. So if you looked at the numbers, you might think that Christie's is more successful. But Sotheby's, in fact, sold more artworks right within the range at or within the range of their estimates than any of the other houses. And I think that actually is a true success of the week is being able to see who accurately priced things, guarantees or no guarantees um, at the right level, rather than having to let things go, you know, for in some cases, a million dollars below the low estimate. Um, So guarantees definitely feed into that. But this season, I would say as well, we saw a few... a bit fewer guarantees than in previous seasons, um, which gives all of us the security to be able to to gauge the market on a more accurate standing and say that these are real prices with real bidders um, and not just a single guarantee in place or a price that's been slightly inflated because of of the security of having a guarantee.
0: Morgan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and helping us recap last week's very interesting and very strong post-Org Contemporary Auctions. There's a lot to digest, and we appreciate you jumping on and helping us do it. If our listeners want to learn more about the Fine Art Group, what's the website they can visit?
1: Uh, Fineartgroup.com. Pretty simple. Thank you so much, Adam. It was great to speak to you today.
0: Thanks again.